Well, thanks for joining us for West Meadows at Home again this week. Uh, If you're with us last week, you know that we started our brand new summer sermon series called Be Fruitful. And over the summer, we're going to be looking at the fruit of the Spirit, which are these characteristics that other people can experience in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you, you're probably familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, but if you haven't read that particular passage in the Bible recently, or if this is a new concept to you, we find this list of the fruit in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, where we read that these are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, as you hear that list of characteristics, you're probably thinking, you know, that, that, that describes like a fictional person. I, I'm not sure a person who properly demonstrates all of those things actually can exist in this world. And if you're asking yourself that question, I got to tell you, it, it's a good question to ask because to some extent you're probably right. And we want to make sure as we start this series that we, we don't set the bar so high that nobody could ever possibly attain it. And so, no, uh, no person themselves can ever fully express all those things. We can't do that. At least, not under our own power, it's not possible. There's no way a person under their own power could do all these things all the time. But that's why it's not called the fruit of you. (laughs) Instead, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Because you see, as we talked about last week, the fruit of the Spirit is a discipline, is not a discipline. It's not something we work on, but rather it's a miracle of God. It's, it's something that He manifests in you and through you. See, miracles are defined by this, as, as God's activity breaking through into the world. And in this particular case, when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, these miracles are breaking through your life into the life of others. Hopefully that makes sense for you. Because anybody who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the Bible tells us that they had this change of identity where they become a child of God. And when that identity change happens, Jesus also promised that we would receive the empowering and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, those who are in Christ are also in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, which is where the fruit of the Spirit becomes possible. Now, if you desire to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, the solution, therefore, is not to work harder. This is some of the stuff we talked about last week. If you want a refresher on this or hear more about it, I invite you to go back and listen or watch last week's message. But see, if you want a desire to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, the solution is not to work harder in ourselves, but to lean harder into our relationship with Jesus. Now, last week, we ended with a discussion about the first manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, that being love, the characteristic of love. And today we're going to move on to the second one, and we're going to talk about joy. So as we do that, let me ask you this question. How do you define joy? How how would you define joy? Is, Is it a feeling would you say maybe joy is this state of being where I just, I exist in this state of joy? Or perhaps as I ask that question, you're thinking to yourself, I'm not even really sure because it's been way too long since I've ever experienced joy. I'm not sure how to define it anymore. 
Well, if you were to look for sort of a, a secular, worldly understanding of joy, you'd find something kind of like this, that, that joy is an emotion evoked by well-being, success, or the good fortune of possessing what one desires. Now, if this is an accurate definition of joy, we can begin to see why it's hard for us to possess it and maintain it. Because according to this definition, joy is based upon the events, the circumstances, and the people in your life. And we know this to be true to an extent, that this is how people sometimes view the idea of joy, where we talk about joyous events, such as a wedding day, this, this joyous event of being married. But then after the wedding day, we enter into the real life, and as we all know who have been married for more than a week, that not every day is joyous. Some days are a real challenge, a real struggle. I also think of um, this idea of joy when our kids were little, and Kalina, Samuel, and Joshua were just, just little ones, and we would sit them on the front step in the summertime, and we'd give each of them an ice cream cone, a, uh, a nice cone with a scoop of ice cream on top. And they'd sit there in this joyous circumstance, and, and they'd eat their ice cream cones. But then Kalina, who was the oldest, she would lick hers maybe a little bit too hard, and, and the scoop of ice cream would bloop, fall on the ground. And you could see the joy leave her face as, as her ice cream was ruined. But you could also see the joy return to her face because she had this little game she'd play with her younger brothers where she would say, switch. <laughs> and she had trained her brothers to pass whatever they had in their hands to the person to the right. And then Kalina would get a new ice cream cone and be happy again. And then quite often Josh, the youngest, would be like, hey, where's my ice cream? So there's events, there's circumstances, but also there's people in our lives. That can sometimes bring us joy, but we know that we can't count on that every day all the time. One day we're BFFs, everything's wonderful, hold everything in common, such joy when we're together. But then we post the wrong Instagram one time, and it's like the whole world turned on us and steals our joy. You see, all these examples I give us to begin here today are, are, are desires to attain and to keep joy based upon events and circumstances and people in the world around us. And we find very quickly that joy based upon those things is fleeting. So I wonder, can we find a stronger, more enduring definition by which we can experience and understand joy? And I want to suggest to you today that we do find a better experience, a better definition, and we find it in the Bible and in the Christian faith. A well-known pastor explained joy this way. He said, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details in my life. It's the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I honestly believe that this definition of joy, this leads us to a deep, enduring state in our soul that no event, no circumstance, and no person could ever possibly steal from us. Here's what I also want you to know. A joy like this is not going to be found in the world. A joy like this is only going to be found in the power and in the presence of God. So, let's look at an example 
uh, of maybe how these conflicting views can be found and, and understood. And, and, and I thought of a, an example this week from, from the Bible in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's a story about King David who had a plan for how he wanted to express his joy in the Lord. But not all of the events, not all of the circumstances, and certainly not all of the people in the story wanted to cooperate with him. So uh, I'll paraphrase the story for us a little bit, but if you want to follow along, you'll find this in 2 Samuel chapter 6. This takes place when David was, uh, just shortly after David was anointed as the king of Israel. Now, when he became king, he inherited a troubled nation due to the, just the tumultuous reality of life under his predecessor, King Saul. And so David inherits this nation that's divided into different regions. He finds a, a nation that has like these obscure cities for, for capital and uh, political and religious capitals throughout the region. And the enemies of the nation are constantly at the door. Now, Early on in David's kingship, he manages to unite the kingdom. He manages to push back the enemies, and in particular the Philistines, to the point where they are never really a threat or heard from again. And he manages to conquer Jerusalem, which he establishes as the political and religious capital of the nation. And it stands to be that for the nation even to this day. Now, in addition to this, he wants to declare and he wants to celebrate God's goodness to him and to the entire nation. And so the way he's going to do this is he's going to move the Ark of the Covenant from its present location to Jerusalem. So David decides to call together 30,000 of his best young soldiers and not to go to war, to go on a parade. And they'd make the 12-kilometer journey from Jerusalem to a place called Kiriath-Jerim. Have you ever heard of it? Probably not. You see, up until this time, there were these obscure places for the political and religious regions of the nation. And so David takes these 30,000 men to Kiriath-Jerim, and they go to get the Ark of the Covenant that had been there for over 60 years. A long time, like, like almost two generations it had been in this obscure place. Now, if, if you're not familiar with the Ark, or uh, if you're a little unsure as to what exactly the significance of the Ark of the Covenant is, it was essentially this gold-covered box that dated back to the days of Moses and the exodus of, of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And God gave them very, very detailed instructions on how they were to build it, to its dimensions and its, its materials and how it was to be used and carried and things like that. And inside the Ark was initially to be put two stone tablets, which were the part of the law between God, part of the covenant between God and his nation. And those stone tablets were part of that law, part of that covenant was to be put in the ark, hence the name, the, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, by the time of David and at the end of the wandering in the wilderness, it had a couple of additional things in there as well. It, it also included a gold urn that had manna in it. It also included Aaron's staff, which uh, from a story you can read later this afternoon, if you wish, in Numbers chapter 17, we read about Aaron's staff that budded miraculously with almonds. That was placed in the ark as well. Now, on top of the ark, on the lid, were two cherubim that had their wings outstretched to form kind of a throne. And this throne was referred to as the mercy seat of God. So you see, the ark 
was like this throne in the midst of the people of Israel where God had promised to sit and reign as king amongst them. The, the Kind of the very first Emmanuel, God with us, symbolized in this ark. So you can you kind of imagine from that brief description how highly valued and highly esteemed this most important symbolic reminder was to the people in the nation of Israel. It reminded them of God's faithfulness. It reminded them of his miraculous provision from the past. And it was a symbol of his continuing presence and commitment to them in the present and the future. So David moving the ark from its current location, this obscure location, to the new political religious capital of Jerusalem was a big deal. 60 years in the making, a celebratory time, something definitely worth joyous celebration. So David and these men arrive, they build a wooden cart to be pulled by oxen, and they place the ark on top of this cart, and they begin their journey to the ark's new home back in Jerusalem. And as they go, in verse 5, we read, David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with, with castanets and with harps and, and with lyres and trimbles and sistrums and cymbals. And, and as you hear all these different instruments and the number of people involved, it's, it sounds to me like the noisiest parade you could ever imagine. Think of it, like, like 30,000 people made up of, of marching bands and dancers and singers just traveling down the road. A noise like that, you could hear that from miles away. Enough time and space that you would come out of your house going, what's all that racket? And when you got out there, you'd realize it's not racket, it's celebration. And you'd have time to join in. And you'd join the party as the ark is moving down the road. Can you kind of get a sense of the atmosphere? Of the energy of the excitement, can you get a sense of the joy that these people would have felt? Well, partway through the travels, one of the oxen stumbles. And when he stumbles, it, it jostles the cart, and, and then the ark starts to shift. And so there's a guy named Uzzah who's beside the ark, who reaches out to, to steady it, make sure it doesn't fall. Whew. Save the day, right? Nope. God strikes him dead right, right there. And he dies right beside the ark. Well, the parade grinds to a halt. The noise of the celebration just, just goes to a whisper. Talk about putting a damper on a party. Now, that might seem kind of harsh because Uzzah's intention was, was good. He, he wanted to make sure the ark didn't fall off the cart. But you see, it was an irreverent act. Because he wasn't taking seriously the power and the holiness of God that existed in the ark. But here's the other thing. It wasn't just a problem with Uzzah. You see, the problem actually started back with David and his means of transportation. See, if David had done a little more homework and, and followed the rules that God had established many, many years earlier, he gave very clear instructions on how the ark was to be handled. And yeah, they hadn't done this for 60 plus years, but God's rules were still God's rules. And it was this, essentially, is that, is that the Levites, the, uh, the priestly nation, were meant to take these long poles and run them through these hoops that were on the side of the ark, and they were to carry it. And you can imagine if they're carrying it, there's no ox to stumble, no cart to jostle, no ark to start to tip, no Uzzah to stop it and lose his life. So, as this happens... David has this mixture of anger and fear. He 
He's thinking to himself, it has been going so well since I became king. And here I am trying to do another good thing, and my plans are ruined. And it costs this man his life. And God's angry at me. And so he says to himself, how will we ever get the ark to Jerusalem? So they decide to pause the parade, and they, they roll the cart to the closest Levite in the region who can properly care for it. And it's a man by the name of Obedidom. And they leave the ark with him. Which, <laughs> a bit of a side note, would have been an absolutely draw-dropping experience <laughs> for this guy. Like, this would have been the equivalent of the Queen of England dropping off the crown jewels at a corner jeweler. I can just imagine a, a knock on the door, and it's like, honey, would you get that for me? Sure, I'll go get that for you, Obed. Opens the door, and Obed cries out, Honey, who is it? Oh, it's King David. He wants to give you the ark for a while. This would have been this amazing, this unbelievable experience that took place. But, but Obed faithfully received it, cared for it, and there the ark stayed for three months. And during that three months, God richly blessed Obed-Edom and his entire family for the three months. Well, after that period of time, David hears of the blessings that God has been pouring out on this man. And he thinks to himself, you know what? God's anger has been appeased. So, in verse 12, David went to bring the ark up from the house of God, from, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. It's time to resume the parade. It's time to finish the mission. And so as we continue, verse 13 through 15, so it says, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and with the sound of trumpets. See, it had been three months, but David's desire to celebrate was not detoured. It was just delayed. Joy still reigned in his heart. It was just paused for a few minutes. And this time, this time, he follows God's instructions. He has the Levites carry the ark on their shoulders through the poles like they were supposed to, and they offer sacrifices along the way as they go. And the parade resumes right where it left off. And I imagine David must have got caught up in all the excitement and all this joyous expression because he strips down to this ephod, which is essentially priestly garments. They're, they're like holy boxer shorts, essentially, not, not, not boxers with holes in them, but, but these holy ceremonial boxer shorts that they would wear when they're in the temple. But David's not alone in this because there's a parade of thousands following behind him, also celebrating like they've never done before. Now, as they make it to Jerusalem and they enter the city, David's wife, Michal, is up in a window looking down upon the parade and, and upon all that's taking place. And she sees David, her husband, King David, dancing in his underwear. And in verse 16, we're told she despised him in her heart. She didn't appreciate the moment. All she could think of is how undignified for my husband, the king, to be doing such a thing. So David drops the ark off at the place prepared for it. He makes more sacrifices of, of joyful worship and celebration towards God. And he blesses all the people. He gives them loaves of bread and cakes of dates and raisins so that they can take these things home and continue the joyous celebration with their families. And then he goes home to his family. As he walks towards the door, I imagine he had thoughts of how he's going to share the, the trip, the, the stories of the adventure he'd been on. 
how he's there to also bless his family, to join in this joyous celebration. But as he opens the door, there's Mikal waiting for him, tapping her toe, scorn on her face, arms crossed. And before he can even say hi, she says, how wonderful the king was today. How did he distinguish himself so wonderfully today? Dancing around like a half-naked old man in front of all those slave girls. That's not what he was expecting. That would be a real challenge to the joy that he had been living for the last few months. So David tells her, you know what? I wasn't dancing for you. I wasn't celebrating in front of slave girls or, or anyone else for that matter. I was celebrating before the Lord who chose me to be the king over his people. And you know what, Mikal? I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes, if it means I can express my joy of the Lord. Now, we see in this story that God was the highest of importance was the highest of authority in David's life. And because of that, nothing could steal his joy. Let's look at those definitions of joy again in, in reflection with this story. Consider the story we just read and think of the secular definition of joy. This idea of a feeling that, that is evoked by well-being, by success, by, by good fortune, that you're able to possess what you desire. In such a case, in such a definition, joy is based upon us receiving what we think will make us happy. It was based upon everything going our way, which didn't happen in the story. Consider the biblical definition. This idea of a deep, enduring state of the soul that no circumstance, event, or person can steal. You see, no event, circumstance, or person can steal it because it's not found in the things of this world. The joy is not found in our plans. It's not found in the hope we have in other people. See, David had a great plan. David had a plan for an awesome event. And his first parade had suddenly been canceled. But did it steal his joy? No. The circumstances around Uzzah's death was a shock to everybody. It shook everybody up. But did it steal his joy? No. What about the people in David's life? His wife was like the ultimate Debbie Downer when he arrives home. She chastises him for dancing around in his boxers. But did she steal his joy? No. Why? Because his relationship with God was unfazed. Because in these events, they actually caused him to press deeper into his relationship with God. And how do we know that? Because the second parade was even better than the first one. He learned from the first one. The trials of the first one led him to ensure the second one was even better because he learned through that. It pushed him deeper into his relationship with God. And this is one of the amazing things about trials that we find in our lives. Trials of which David had many in this story. You see, if joy is based upon the things of this world, it will fail us. We will lose our joy and our hope right along with it. If you are excited to go camping, but then it rains the whole time, you're miserable. If you're excited to go try a new movie or a new restaurant, and you go there and it's just not very good, doesn't live up to expectations, you feel let down. If you put all your eggs in the basket of one person who will complete me and make me happy, 
I promise you the day will come when that joy will fail because they will fail you. Not because they mean to, but because they are human. But if our joy is based upon the things of God, even when we have trials in our lives, it pulls us deeper towards him. We read about this in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James says this as he opens his letter. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now I know that when we face trials, we're not very excited about it. Yes, just what I needed. Another trial. I'm so overjoyed, said nobody ever. It's this backwards thinking from, from the normal human response to hardship. And James knows this. He knows that this is, this is the reality of the audience to which he's initially writing. He said, I don't know what's happening in your life right now, but in the life of the people that James is writing to in this letter, many of them were in extreme poverty. Many of them were undergoing extreme persecution in all areas of their lives. But as James writes this, he's not delusional. He's not saying that we should feel happy when trials come our way. Rather, he's saying we are to call it, to, to count it, to attach the label joy to it. Why? Not because it makes us happy, but because it's an opportunity for joy to be revealed in our lives. How does that work? Well, in short, it's all about faith. And it's about trusting in God who wants us to respond to trials in our lives with demonstrations of faith and trust in him. You see, faith is how we come into relationship with him in the first place. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's how we become a follower of Christ and, and become a child of God and, and enter into that new reality, that new identity. But faith is also how we grow. By pushing into that is how we grow our faith as we lean more into him and experience more of his power in the face of the trials. Now, by definition, a trial is, is, is like the opposite of what we would understand joy to be because a trial creates moments where we don't know how things are going to work out. Trials wreck our plans. We saw that in David. He had a plan. The trials of the journey wrecked his plans. And they take away our ability to see a clear path to attain what we think will make us happy. What we think will give us joy. But in these moments, we face a choice. And the choice is this. And the choice we make will determine our joy. In the face of trials, we can either say, if God let it happen, I can't trust him. So I'm going to go find something else or, or someone else to trust into quite often myself. Or, in the face of a struggle, we can choose to push more into God for more help, to trust more deeply in him. And as we've been explaining, even just in the first two weeks of this series, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And as we push more into our relationship with Christ, 
As we push more into that and experience more of him, we experience more of the Spirit, and there's more opportunity from his presence for the fruit of the Spirit to be manifest, one of which being joy. Now, as I wrote these words this past week, as as I was putting this on paper, these encouragements that I want to offer to you today, I had to pause for a second. And I had to ask myself the question, does this idea of experiencing joy in the midst of situations of life, does it only exist for people who are saying, you know what, life's going pretty good right now. There, there's some stuff, but I can handle it. Or, or does it exist for people who have trials, but, but trials not much beyond the ice cream cone falling on the ground? What about people who are going through serious trials? And my mind and my heart were plagued by many of the challenges that people within our congregation, even this very week, have experienced. The circumstances of poverty. You know, this past Tuesday, 40 families came and picked up food hampers from the church. 40 families from the community came here to get food because of something happening in their life, whether it's, whether it's poverty, uh, uh, being underemployed, the effects of COVID, It led them to a point where they can't afford to buy enough groceries for their home. That's a trial. A difficult one. There's events in people's lives as well that that are challenging. There's those in this church who who we know who have been diagnosed with COVID. And they face the uncertainty of the future. There's people in our lives this very week who have lost loved ones. We think of the sudden passing of Edie Chesworth and the grief and the sorrow and and kind of the fog that that leaves around the family. Is it reasonable for me to tell them, be joyful? It's the question I had to wrestle with. Is it reasonable for me to tell them, just press into God, lean into that and, and be joyful? My conclusion is yes, it is, but, but this caveat, but with the proper definition of joy, with the biblical definition of joy, a definition that doesn't say that we need to just always be happy, fake it till you make it, that, that's not what it's about. A definition that's, that says your joy is not based upon the happenings in your life. That yes, we will experience hardships and trials and sorrows and we will suffer and it will be difficult. But in the midst of all that, you can still experience the presence of God. We still have the ability to say in the midst of the very real and very appropriate sorrow and strife, in the midst of those things, we still have the ability to say that God is with me. that I can experience this settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, that this quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. Maybe not today, but a day down the road. Everything will be all right. And this determined choice to praise God in the midst of every situation. And I believe that because if the word of God is true, and I with my whole heart believe it is, then in every event, 
in every circumstance, in every relationship with every person we have, we can say, as Paul said, in prison, not knowing if he would live or die, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Why? Because we can rejoice in the good times and we can rejoice even when trials come. Because first of all, God is with you. If your eyes are fixed upon the trial in your life, the challenges before you, I encourage you, lift your eyes up to heaven and hear the words that God said through the prophet Isaiah, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand because God is with you. Secondly, God is for you. That even if your present challenges seem to tell you something to the contrary, God is for you. God has brought you this far through life in the past, and I can tell you this, he is not done with you yet. And that you can face any trial that you're experiencing head on and confidently say the words of Paul in Romans 8 when he said, if God is for me, who can stand against me? God is with you, God is for you, but God will also carry you through. Because when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible uses this image of us being placed into his hand. And there's different ways we can understand this idea. Number one, we can understand it as holding hands, where there's a sense of intimacy, as we are holding hands with an intimate connection with our Lord and Savior. We can also say we are placed into his hand in the sense of that he, he cups us in his hand and protects us from things that are happening in the world around us. We can also understand it as an outstretched helping hand. As he says, I know the rock is hard to get over. I know the steep incline is difficult to get up, but I extend my hand and we are in this together. And then John 10, Jesus says, you know what? No one shall ever snatch you out of my hand. God is with you. God is for you. And God will carry you through any situation or trial you have in your life. And as you consider the truth of these statements, that God is with you, God is for you, God will carry you, can you feel joy, even a little bit of sense of joy, welling up inside of you? Because if so, if you can sense that, then you know how the fruit of the Spirit works. Because we abide in Christ, not upon ourselves, not abide in the things of this world, but abide in Christ, we can start to understand how the fruit of the Spirit works. If you can feel that, you can start to sense how the fruit of the Spirit of joy feels. Because it should not make sense and it should not exist in the midst of the trials, but there it is. And it's not of yourself, it is of the Spirit that is in this with you. That comes from the fact that God holds you in his hand. And uplifts you and keeps you. And will carry you through. And then, like David, even if our plans fall apart, even if our anticipated events don't live up to what we expect, even when people fail us, the joy of the Lord remains. Why? Because it is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives and the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise him in the midst of every situation. That's a biblical definition of joy. Well, before we end today, I have what we could consider a little bit of a surprise for you. And that being an opportunity for us all right now to share in a joyous event. And here's what it is. You know, since mid-March, we haven't had the opportunity to hold any, any 
you know, church services or, or events within the building. But this past week, we, we had a small group of people gather to participate in our first one. Whereas just a couple of days ago, we held a small baptism, fam, uh, baptism service for the Gabor family, for, for Nada's father, Muhammad. And his story is a story of a man who, even from, from a very young age, had encounters with the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and it led to some curiosity in his life, but, but not to a point of kind of crossing that line and, and accepting Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. And many, many years and decades passed, and still he hadn't made that profession of faith. There were times when he would come to Edmonton here and he would participate in services at West Meadows. And, and as he shares his testimony, all of us here at this church play a role in sharing the grace, truth, and love of Jesus Christ with him. And it made a difference. So much so that in recent days, he's had the opportunity to ask more questions and spend more time talking about the things of Jesus. To further explore the truths of who Jesus is and the difference that he can make in a person's life. And before I say any more, let me do this. I'll allow him to share the rest of his story as we share in this joyous occasion of his baptism. In the middle of the season of the COVID-19, I have more opportunity to talk with Arya and Neda because they were at home. من هرچی بیشتر دارم برای مسیحیت گوش میکردم. As much as I heard about the Christianity, من بیشتر از اسلام دور میشدم. I were farther from the Islam. آنها فیلم عیسی مسیح را به من نشان دادند. They uh, gave me uh, the chance to watch uh, Jesus of Christ movie. و ما شبها در در اون درباره اون صحبت کردیم تا اوایل ماه ژوئن که دیدار یکدیگر با راین فاصله آزاد شده بود the nights and nights we talk about this matter until the june beginning of june uh, the visiting each other can be free by distancing من با مهسا زیاد صحبت کردم i talked a lot with masa آریا و رضا چندین بار در حیات من با من صحبت کردند. آریا و رضا few times talked with me in the yard. یک روز پس از یک گفتگوی طولانی one day after a long conversation رضا از من خواست که برای من دعا کند. رضا asked me would you like I pray for you که من اجازه دهم که عیسی به قلب من وارد شود. That was I should let Jesus to enter in my heart. Because Holy Spirit will, uh, will, will open for me how I should understand this matter. I was ready for accepting. آن شب خواب دیدم که مسلمانان به من حمله کردند. The night uh, I had dream uh, Muslims people attacked me. اما کسی که او را نمی‌شناختم but someone I didn't know him جلوی من ایستاده بود 
و از من محافظت میکرد he was in front of me and he was taker of me taking of me و اونها را دور میکرد and uh, the or- he ordered them to go far روز بعد رضا کتاب قدس به من داده بود next day Reza gave me the holy uh, the, the bible به من شروع به خواندن اون کردم and i starting to read بعد از سوالات زیادی داشتم after that i had a lot of questions خوشبختانه سوال می‌پرسیدم و عزیزانم به من جواب می‌دادند fortunately i had chance to have a question and they answer me خدا در قلب من کار کرد و من امروز اعتقاد کامل دارم Lord worked in my heart and today I have faith and I have trust uh, Jesus is the son of the God uh, He crucified and he died because of our sins He rose in the third days from death and he is alive I believe he uh, he gave sacrifice to us I believe he is son of God he came in the earth and he crucified because of our sin و او پس از سه روز از مردگان برخاست and he rose after three days و اکنون او در دست راست پدر آسمانی است and he is in right hand of the heavenly father من معتقدم که عیسی خداست i believe he is god او خداوند و منجی من است he is lord and my savior Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And is it your commitment to make him the Lord of your life for the rest of your days? Then upon this good confession that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life, I baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. و من این رو میدونم که تو در ادامه راه زندگیت میخوای اون رو دنبال بکنی و مسیحی زندگی کنی و من تو رو تعمید میدم به نام پدر، پسر و روح القدس. Wasn't that awesome? You know, I hope it warms your heart. That, that whatever may be happening in your life right now, that as you listen to somebody share their personal story of the difference Jesus made in their life, I, I hope it brings joy to your heart. You know, if there's anything that you heard today, that, that you saw today, whether it be in, in the singing, in the message, in the baptism, that, that caused the spirit within you to want to respond, I, I encourage you to do so now.
And maybe that response comes through in, in the form of saying, you know what, I, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I desire to experience this deep, enduring state of joy that's only possible through the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, I need to make that commitment today. It's the same commitment Muhammad made. The journeys to that point may be different, but here we find ourselves at this particular moment. Who has God been using in your life? What, what events has brought you to this moment where the spirit inside of you says, this is what you need. This is what you've been seeking. This is what will bring the fulfillment that nothing of this world has ever satisfied. And the reason it doesn't satisfy is because of this. Because we're told that there, there's what could be referred to as this God-shaped hole in every person's life. And God knows that that exists, and he loves you, and wants to fill that vacancy in your life that nothing else will do. But the problem is that he is holy, and we're sinful. Holy enough that as, as Uth touched the ark and lost his life, uh, there's a separation between us and God because of our sinfulness and his holiness. And, and the two never shall meet upon their own, except God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to stand in the gap, to pay the price for your sins and for mine. That if we would accept in faith that Jesus' sacrifice was the sufficiency for our sins and, and say, thank you, Jesus, for giving your life to pay the price that I could not pay on my own. Thank you for standing in the gap Thank you for being my Savior to save me from that state of lostness. When we receive Christ's forgiveness, when we pray a prayer like that, the Bible says that we enter into a relationship with God and we become a new creation. That our sins are forgiven, that they're wiped away, the price has been paid, and we are made new. If that is a reality in your life that needs to take place, I encourage you, number one, to click the box in the comment section beside me that says you're giving your life to Christ today. But then number two, to click on the live prayer button and spend a moment praying with somebody, asking your questions to somebody who can step into this moment with you right now. Now, I know there are others who are watching right now who are facing trials, and maybe as you look back upon the journey that you find yourself in recently, you know you've been trusting more in yourself rather than pressing more into God. If that's the case, you may be lacking some of these fruit of the Spirit, in particular joy. So I want to give you an opportunity now to confess that and to say, I need to stop trusting in myself and to understand that this problem is bigger than me but is not bigger than my God. And press more into that relationship with Jesus Christ. Allow him to bring healing, to bring encouragement, to bring joy into the midst of that situation. It may not end in a miraculous moment. But remember, he will go through that trial with you. Because he is for you. And he will carry you through it. If you find yourself in that situation right now where you need to confess your, your, your self-trust and need to confess more of a need to trust in God. I also encourage you to click on that button right now that you are giving your life to Christ in symbolic of this moment. And I invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of joy. A joy that is not found in the situations, the circumstances, the parts of our lives that we can manufacture and that we can cause to exist. But Lord, joy that you can cause to exist amidst 
despite all of those things. Lord, I know that there are those in this world and who are listening to my voice right now who are struggling. And God, we pray for them. We acknowledge that their sorrow and that their strife is authentic and appropriate and genuine. And Lord, we know that you've experienced those things too. We read in Scripture that Jesus wept over the loss of a friend. That Jesus was was deeply troubled in his soul at the events that would happen on the night of his crucifixion. We know that in all these things, Lord, he experienced these emotions. And therefore, these emotions are not sinful. But we also know, Lord, that he did not trust in himself in any of those moments, but trusted in the presence of you and trust in the presence of the Heavenly Father. And so, God, I pray for those in our congregation, those who can hear my voice who are struggling right now, that they too would place their trust in you. That they would believe that you are with them, you are for them, that you will carry them through this trial as you have trials in the past. And God, for those who are contemplating or who have made that first-time commitment to you, God, I pray that you would continue to work and reveal yourself in their lives in powerful ways, that they would experience and just be impassioned by the fruit of the Spirit being manifest in them, and that those around them would see the change and the difference it makes and ask questions to say, what is different about you, and that we could all point to the reality of Jesus Christ. And we could all say, come and taste that the Lord is good. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for being with us again this week. We look forward to having you join us again next Sunday for West Meadows at home. We'll see you then.